Amen. Would you all get up for Jessly one more time? Thank you, Jessly. <laughs> Um, we have been in a, it disappeared to grab the podium. We have been in a collection of talks um, the past couple of weeks called The Path. And um, the premise of it has been Jesus, starting at the Mount of Transfiguration, we started a couple weeks ago. Jesus was on this path uh, from this moment to ultimately the, his death, burial, and resurrection. Spoiler alert. Um, and uh, he. We've been looking at some different things, and Jesus' journey to the, to the cross and to the, to the grave and then to his resurrection and ascension, there are some key moments that we've been looking at on Jesus' journey, and how can we apply that to our own journey on our, in our own story? Um, and like Danny mentioned earlier, this Friday we're going to be looking at in detail what the cross and Good Friday actually um, means in a really applicable um, and and, and awesome way. Um, and then next, next Sunday, April 9th, um, is Easter Sunday. And um, I, it is, there's no better Sunday to invite people to church. People, um, more often than not, are looking for places to go to church on Sunday. Um, and we call those people CEOs, church Easter only, or Christmas Easter only. Um, it's not a bad thing. I'm, we're glad they're here. Uh, we are so glad that they would take time to join us. But though, there are a lot of people out there like that, and they're just waiting on a personal invitation. Uh, and so if you would step out and invite somebody, um, what's the worst they can say? No, they're already not coming. So uh, I would encourage you to get out there, invite people, um, and let's make um, next Sunday at 9.30 and 11 um, just the, the best Sunday ever. Um, so with all that being said, uh, this is week five of the path, and last week, uh, Pastor Lee was here, and he talked about the trial of Jesus. Again, you can catch all this on our Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you want to go back and listen to these. But we talked about the trial of Jesus, and we talked about Barabbas and about how Jesus was our substitute um, in that regard. And we we're picking up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, flip their phone, swipe there. If not, it'll be on the Sky Bible, the screens um, for you. But before we read that, really quickly, just want to set up a little bit of context. And in this context, let me just be very outright, upfront, honest with you. It's brutal. Um, I didn't want to come out here this morning and start, you know, have a ten I make jokes, you know, to just to kind of deal with the uncomfortable, brutal truths sometimes that we have to talk about. But this, this morning, to set up a little bit of content, it is brutal what happens to Jesus before we get into these verses, and even in these verses. You see, the passage we're going to be looking at today, Pilate, the man in charge of Jesus' sentencing, after he frees Barabbas, he washes his hands of this man. He goes, I, I find no, this man is innocent. I don't know what you want me to do, but like, I, we has, he has gone through trial, he's gone through different judges, and everything has come back as this man is clean. There is nothing, I can find no guilt in this man. So, but in order to fight, he had a, he had a, um, a, a job description where he was to keep the Israelite people calm. That was his job in Israel. That was his job at the time for the Roman government for Caesar. And there was about to be a revolution if he did not sentence this man to death. So he says, I wash my hands clean of this man. I don't know what you want me to do, but just do what you want. And essentially what he says is, in, in, in the scripture before the verses we're about to get to, he says, may his blood 
be on your hands. And then and the Pharisees and the Jewish people who were surrounding this, this judgment, this court scene, which was a couple hundred of them. If you've seen any movies where they depict a crucifixion scene, it's not 20 to 30 people. There are 600 Roman guards there. There are hundreds of Jewish people, including religious leaders, that are yelling, crucify him. And so Pilate says, I wash my hands of this man. May his blood be on your hands. And the Jewish people cry out, may his blood be on our hands and our children's. Like, we will accept this. Little did they know that that's the prayer for all Christians throughout, from this time on. That we pray the blood of Jesus over our lives and upon our children's lives and upon our families' lives. And as we pray it as in a way that it blots out our sin, they prayed it in a way that God's downfall would be on their hands. And it's this crazy, brutal scene. So they took Jesus to be tortured. And after the torturing, they took him back to Pilate's quarters, where again, 600 Roman soldiers were waiting for him. They took his clothes off and put a robe on him and placed a crown of thorns into his skull. They put a reed, a fake scepter, in his hands, and they bowed and mocked him. Then they would spit on him, hit him, um, hit him on his head where the crown was, strip him, and then led him to be crucified. This is the scene in which we arrive in, in Matthew chapter 27. Starting in verse 32, it says this, and as they went out, they found a man from Cyrene, Simon by the name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with, mixed with gall, a vinegar, a bitter, sour, weird concoction. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, meaning they were selling and gambling for his clothes. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed derided him, making fun of him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, for if he desires him, for, God, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reveled in the same way. Now the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And in the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, um, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Growing up, I played basketball a lot, and um, from the age of 12 until now in my life, I have sprained, broken, or torn tendons in my left ankle 12 times. Um, once you sprain an ankle, um, the odds of spraining or hurting that ankle, um, again, um, the percentage, it goes, it's through the roof. Um, once it's done once, it is most likely to happen 
again. Um, and so I don't know if you know this, but middle school basketball, you're not getting your ankles taped before games, right? Like there's no personal trainer for middle school basketball. If somebody's got a concussion, their mom's taking them to the ER, right? Like that's what they're doing. Um, and uh, so I remember being in seventh grade. I came down weird. I sprained my ankle, a freak accident, and it just swelled up on me. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? And um, I thought, I mean, it was the most pain I had been in up until that point, to my knowledge. I broke my leg when I was three. Don't remember it. But up until that point, it was the most pain I had been in. And I remember the doctor was like, hey, listen, you cannot walk on it um, or, pour, or put pressure on it um, for X amount of weeks. And after X amount of weeks, you're going to be in a boot. Um, and after that, um, we're gonna, you're going to be in an ankle brace. But there's no basketball for you for at least three months. This is a seventh grader who's like just uh, energy embodied in flesh, right? Like that's what I was. Uh, I, it was like detrimental to just lay on a couch all day with my leg up, right? Now, to some people, that sounds like heaven, right? Like uh, I get to like catch up on all my Netflix. There was no Netflix back then, right? My parents, we weren't rich enough to have cable. I had Fox, PBS, CBS, NBC, and then whatever uh, the CW was on, right? Like that was it. And so like throughout the day, um, I wasn't watching Days of Our Lives. I wasn't watching Antiques Roadshow. I wasn't doing any of that. There was like other things I had to figure out, what am I going to do? So I just slept. And so I was just like, I, I'm just going to sleep through this, and hopefully I'll wake up and everything will be different. So I just went through this long journey, and it seemed like it would never end. Well, I finally got back into basketball in the next year, the next summer. At, um, I was just playing pickup basketball over the summer, so my friends sprained it again. Not as bad, but it was still a process, but I kind of understood how to recover. And then I broke it, which a break is way better than a sprain. Um, so I broke it, and I had to go through that process. And then I didn't sprain I just tore a bunch of tendons in it. And then I broke it again, and then back and forth and back and forth to the time where uh, I was, I think the last time I did something to it, I was 19 and um, I sprained it. I knew exactly what happened the second it happened. Uh, my brother was making me really mad at, in a game of basketball. He was getting really physical with me, and if it was anybody else, sure, whatever, but it's my brother, so it's time to one-up him. Um, so I come down the lane, and I see that he's under the basket, and I'm ready to, like, I'm going to dunk on him, and I'm going to put him on a poster. So I go to take off, and when you go to plant, like, I just, I, I planted like that. Well, I stepped on somebody's foot when I did that, and it just went... I knew it was out of place. I was like, okay. And I just dropped. Um, I held it. I kind of just finagled it back into place really quick. I went to the doctor, came back. I knew I was going to be out for a little bit, but I knew how to recover. So, Trey, what's the point of all of this? At the, when it happened in the first place, I thought everything was lost, right? They're going to amputate my leg from the knee down, right? I didn't know, but I just had this worst case scenario in my head. The last time it happened, I'm like, not a big deal. Like, yes, it hurts. Yes, it is painful, but I know how this plays out. Let me say, let me say this, church. In, in light of everything that is, you've seen in the news, um, between school shootings, between um, maybe pain in your own personal story, I'm here to tell you this, what doesn't make, this, what doesn't make the news as far as pain and hurt in that world, is far greater than anything that does. So all of that to say, there is pain and brokenness and hurt in this world. And it's not going away anytime soon. It's not. This is really encouraging. Glad I brought somebody this week. It's not. 
You take humans out of the world, there are still storms that rip up trees by the roots. There are still plates that shift under the earth's surface that cause tsunamis that come in and kill wildlife. There are still animals that eat animals. There is still death and destruction in this world if you take us out of it. Brokenness, sin, fabric, the downfall of creation has been in full effect since Genesis chapter 3. We live in a broken world, and where there is brokenness, there is pain. What got me through in good spirits making jokes the last time I really hurt my ankle was the fact I knew how this played out. I had a proper perspective. And I'm here to tell you what the gospel does. There are some misconceptions about Christianity. If you step into Christianity, God's best for you is prosperity. When you step into Christianity, God's best for you is is comfortability. When you step into Christianity, this happens and this happens and it works in your favor. And that favor has to be the American dream. Well, you tell me this. How does that worldview work for the person across the world who claims Jesus, who is just beaten and tortured and threatened to death in the streets if they don't renounce his name? Is that prosperity? Is that favorability upon the person who worships the same Jesus we just proclaimed this morning? See, we have to have a proper perspective of following Jesus that does not mean an absence of pain. For that is not the message of the cross that we just read. Jesus didn't die and suffer so that way we could live a painless life. No, here's what the cross does. The cross gives us perspective around our pain. For God does not always step in and remove pain, but God steps in and gives us perspective in and around and through our pain. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the cross. You see, Jesus, when he went to the cross and experienced that pain, he did not look up at heaven and go, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. He finished the job. He knew his purpose and he finished it with joy in the middle of suffering. How? Because he had the perspective that there is something greater, that the future glory we have cannot be compared to the sufferings of this present time. That there was a proper perspective. And proper perspective in the midst of hurt and pain is crucial. Your perspective will determine how you view your pain process your pain, walk through your pain, and not just how you will come out of it, but to be honest, even if you will come out of it. And this is the beauty of this, of this weekend of, we're talking about something so brutal, but yet there is hope in it. And I'm going to tell you, there is hope in your pain. There is hope around it. We talk about this, we don't, well, something we don't like to talk about a lot is death. And for, there are people that have walked through tragedy, and I'm here to tell you that with a proper perspective around death, here's the truth of it. Either God's going to heal you from death or he's going to heal you through death. Like that's a proper perspective of death. Somebody who's on their deathbed that doesn't want it and is praying for healing, a proper perspective of is God doesn't heal them or heal me, he's no longer in this story. A proper perspective is this. Either he's going to heal you from this or he's going to heal you through this. And when you see him face to face, there is no more brokenness, sickness, or death. You are with him in ultimate glory. That's a proper perspective that the cross gives us of pain. 
It gives us so much perspective. Say, Trey, what is this perspective? What, what kind of perspective are we talking about? Here's a perspective that the cross gives us. That God is always working and accomplishing his plan even in suffering. God is always working and accomplishing his plan even in suffering. And it says, as they went out, they compelled this man to carry the cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They led him to a place where he was to be crucified. Let me, tell you, let me also, this is a little bit of tidbit free information for you. In that day and age, they would typically crucify the person getting crucified in front of their front door at their house. That was typical. That's what the Roman government did as a sign, do not mess with us. What does the gospel say about Jesus? He had no permanent home. So they took him to where they would do the majority of capital punishment to people who had no place to stay, had no true foundation, had no true place in society. They took him to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, when you see it in cartoons or you see it in drawings, you're like, it's the skull-like rock. And that's, it's, it's debatable, right? Like, nobody knows if that's true or if somebody came in years later and, like, chiseled it out. There's no, nobody knows. Here's what I do know. The place was called Golgotha, not because it looked like that. The place was called Golgotha, the place of the skull, because history teaches us that whenever the people would die of crucifixion to save room and space in the ground, the Roman government would just leave their bodies there on the ground. And so the, it was called the place of the skull because of the bones and skulls they had to push out of the way to make a path for the people carrying the cross to get there. That's why it was called the place of the skull. It was the trophies of death's victories. But little did death know that it was not going to have a victory today, for this was the place that death came to die by Jesus Christ. His plan was being fulfilled. And said so they offered him drink mixed with gall, but when they, he had tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments and among them by casting lots. If death wasn't bad enough, they added mockery, bitterness, and terror in as well. And while he was on the cross with nails in his hands and feet, a crown of thorns on his head, mocked by man and by the enemy, no doubt, he was stripped naked. For just as Adam was naked in the garden when he found out, when, or when sin entered into the world, for he was shameful, Jesus was presented naked before God as to settle that original sin the punishment for sin and man. And one of the reasons they did this was to sell his garments to his followers, for that was the only thing they viewed as like, listen, they follow this? Dude, we're going to get some money off these clothes. So let's just, it was this huge presentation circus. Here's God, Jesus, and they're making fun of him. They're bargaining for his clothes to sell it to his disciples to upprice his garments. For that was the only value that these clothes had to the, to the Roman soldiers. And they, and they just watched them. 600 Roman soldiers, all these followers, just looked at this man suffering and just watched for hours. Not knowing that there was a fight going on behind the scenes that they couldn't understand. You see, think about this. Not only was humanity watching all of this unfold... But there's no doubt in my mind that Satan and the demons and the enemy were also watching this unfold. Cheering on in the spiritual world that has been covered to our eyes. Cheering on, watching their creator. Right? Because Jesus created them before they were fallen and rebelled. Watching their creator, God, 
be brutally massacred by humanity, the people that he created in his image. Now the enemy deceived into betraying him. No doubt they're not watching this going, oh crap. They're watching it going like, yes, kill him. Is this going to happen? Are we about to win? For scripture says when he died and, and went to the grave that hell rejoiced for it thought it had won. So in this moment, think about it. Satan and the enemy are most likely on this hill with all of humanity cheering as their creator, the Holy One, but also their enemy is being crucified. And there is an, but, but to even their hiddenness, something they didn't even see, much, much less humanity didn't see, was that God was fighting a battle that they didn't even know. And the disciples are just watching Jesus take it and hang in there. They have to be thinking, come on, man, fight. Like you did in the garden. Make them fall back. I don't know, like God, fight. His plan is always, he's always working. His plan is always being accomplished, even in suffering. If they're thinking to themselves, fight, Jesus. We've seen you do miracles. Fight. Let's flip it to our perspective. How often do we want God to fight our way? God, fight. I'm working. I need you to work differently then because what I'm seeing, you're not working. I am. It's just not how you want me to. But I am working, and I need you to trust that I am working. To them, he wasn't, but he was doing something, accomplishing something that they couldn't see or perceive. And how often do we think that God has, has to come through in certain ways in our lives, and if he doesn't, he's not working at all? God may be orchestrating things that you can't see yet. He may. But here's what I can promise you. God has a plan, and it is not to accomplish yours, but his. And so I am going to trust that his plan will be accomplished. And what is his plan? What? It's to give me a good life. It's to give me a golden doodle, right? It's to give me a five, three bedroom house. That's, that's, that's God's plan for my, no. God's plan for your life, God's plan for humanity is that all things might be redeemed unto him and that maybe he may be Lord of all things and the sole focus of your life and your worship. That is God's plan. And so his plan is to advance the kingdom of God. Not to make the kingdom comfortable. His goal is to advance it and to give you perspective in the middle of your pain. We continue on in this story and it says, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. See, it was common for these types of crucifixions to write about the criminals, why they were being crucified. So if it was a robber, it would be like, so-and-so, robbing. Murderer, so-and-so, murderer. So they wrote over his head the reason for his crime. King. I mean, there was no crime against this. It wasn't claimed Messiah. It wasn't usurping king, insurrectionist, thief, murderer. He had done nothing wrong. And even Pilate, like you remember, washed his hands and says, this man is innocent. And they designed this for his mockery. But even in their mockery, listen, it proclaimed his title and his power. 
So even when the enemy comes against God and is like, we are going to disarray and disprove and do this, God still comes forth and is like, who can bring a charge against me? And their mockery, they still proclaimed his power. And he... And, he, and God's plan will not be stopped. He was, how encouraging should that be for us that in the midst of our suffering, God is working to accomplish his plan and his plan hasn't changed. For understand this, God has not and will not change for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then it says, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. He was crucified between two criminals, two robbers. Many believe this, that this was the national execution day for Rome. If they had anybody on death row, just knock it out. So Pilate rushed Jesus's execution and prosecution to have him be crucified with other common criminals, hopefully to cover up his innocence. And this was to fulfill Isaiah 53, 12, which says he was numbered with transgressors. That day, it was not just Jesus crucified with those two robbers, it was a death day in the Roman Empire. And Pilate rushed it to get it just lost in, transit, in, in, in paperwork. And we continue to read, and it says, And those who passed by, they mocked him. And somebody said, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you are the Son of God, come down. And if he cannot save others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, so let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. For if you say, I'm the Son of God, and there is this whole back and forth, and Jesus was already carrying our sins, our iniquities. He was already dying. And if that wasn't enough, crowds of individuals came up to him to mock him. They verbally abused him. They did not just let a dying man die. They had to continue to tear him down. And here's the truth. Not once in scripture did we see anybody who walked, who, you know, today is Palm Sunday. Not once in scripture do we see anybody who was lining the streets, laying palms down as Jesus came in on a donkey shouting, Hosanna, meaning our Savior is here. Our Savior is here. Not once do we see in this passage where somebody steps up and goes, hey, but that's our Savior. The only people that spoke at the place of his death were the people that mocked him, abused him, and verbally attacked him. Even his disciples that were there said, Nothing. They mocked his prophecy of how the temple was going to be destroyed, the place God dwelt, what they didn't know what he was talking about himself, for they mocked him, for they did not know. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Have you ever thought this to yourself of like, I don't understand what the gap is for people and what we're preaching. Really, the only thing that gives a solid foundation to anything in life compared to the people who just live by their own free will and, they're, and you're like, you're living on sand that is ever shifting and you don't have no foundation of truth. But yet they're happy here and they think we're crazy. Have you ever thought like, why is that the case? Like why, this is the, if you just use sound logic, what we believe actually has to make sense. Right, like even Neil deGrasse, a famous atheist says this, all of evolution is dependent on one miracle. They're like, and that logic, like, so what is that miracle? We can't explain it. Like we can, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that truth has never changed. 
And so you're like, this makes sense. I don't understand why people won't come to church. I don't understand why people won't do this. I don't understand why people won't believe. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. It's because this, for the cross, that news is silly to them who do not have the spirit of God living inside of them. When they read God's word and the spirit is not in them, leading them, guiding them, it is ridiculous to them. And that is a truth that I think we often forget that the teachings and the ways of God do not make sense to those who are not believers. Now, there are moments, well, how do people become saved in the first place if they just think it's silly to begin with? I think a couple of reasons. I think, number one, God is working in their lives, and that's through prayer and his divine appointment. It's when you're praying for somebody. It's like that story in the New Testament when the people lowered their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. They cut a hole in the ceiling, and Jesus didn't look at this man and says, your faith has made you whole. He looked at them and says, because of your faith, I'm going to save this man. Meaning this, that your heart and your prayer for others leads God's heart to start to work in others and be open and be able to accept the message that you and I carry and proclaim. I think God softens people's hearts. You ever met somebody and you're like, they're ready for Jesus. Then you met other people and you're like, I'll be praying for you. But it's often those people that eventually come around and it's a crazy God story when that happens. But here's what I do know. God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And they mocked him for claiming to be the son of God. If you are the son of God, these are the same words the devil, that, as the devils when Jesus was in the, te- uh, the wilderness being tempted. In the previous chapter, Jesus just got baptized and God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jump over to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus led to the desert. Uh, Satan shows up and goes, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. And they berated him with the fact that he could not save himself. They challenged him to get down from the cross, and he didn't. And how often do we paint God as this thing that we want him to be? Well, my Jesus, my Jesus would never, right? My Jesus, uh, my, my Jesus would do this. Okay, well, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's your interpretation for who you want him to be. God does not change. And there are, and you, if you watch the news, and I'm not one to get super into news or politics or anything like that, but the name of Jesus is being thrown around where Jesus, and I heard this the other day, and I, I'm not one to, again, disparage, but Jesus would be the one leading the parade at the LGBTQ parade. That's my Jesus. And I, I think we forget to understand this. There's Old Testament God, this is what we think. There's Old Testament God, and then there's Jesus, who undid all of that and is all about love. He's love, he loves, he loves, he loves, he loves, he loves, and he does love you. But let's not forget what Jesus actually preached throughout the New Testament. He goes, you've heard it said that if you sleep with another woman, it's adultery while you're married. I'm here to tell you that if you look at another woman with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. There is no, let me take the Old Testament, water it down a little bit, and just kind of, he goes, I'm upping the stakes. It's no longer murder if you just kill somebody. If you have anger in your heart towards somebody, 
you've already committed murder. Hold up. No, that's the level of sin and brokenness that you and I choose to love and cling to rather than holiness, which God has called us to. And so I I say all that to say this, that there is a God who is never changing. And in his never changingness, he knew you and I could not meet the standard of holiness that is required to enter into righteousness in heaven. And so on the cross, an unchanging, never failing God was accomplishing his plan to give us his righteousness while he took on our sin. How much confidence and hope and perspective around that, our pain should that give us that the God we serve and follow does not waver, nor is he persuaded to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you're walking through life's valleys, understand the God of peace, love, and joy is with you. When you're on life's mountaintops, understand the God of peace, love, and joy is with you. And when you're in the ups and downs of life, when life can be up and down as Colorado or it can be feel as flat as Florida, understand that the God of peace, love, and joy is with you every single step of the way. He's with you. And on that cross, he was fighting a battle you and I do not know. And what did he do on that cross? What did he free us from? The weight of sin and brokenness that was not ours to carry, but it was paid for and worn by our Savior. Really quickly, we've got we to move fast, but there is a Greek, or a, the leader of Egypt at this time, his name was Dionysus, and he wrote this in his paperwork, in the historical letters. It said this, if the band wants to go ahead and make their way up, but he wrote this in the history books, for he noticed this darkness that came over the land like we read about. He says, either the God of nature is suffering, or the machine of the world is tumbling into ruin. For Egypt knew the stars. They knew when the solar eclipse was supposed to happen, but this was not that. This was a supernatural darkness that covered the land. And the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, who knew nothing of what was going on in Israel at the time, wrote wrote this exact phrase on a piece of paper. Either the God of nature is suffering or the machine of the world is tumbling into ruin. For the world went into total darkness. And heaven was horrified and mortified. In Matthew 26, 53, it says that 72,000 angels were on the edge of heaven looking at God the Father, waiting for the command to say, go rescue him. But the command never came. 72,000 angels were on the edge of the precipice of heaven going, we've got to go get him. And God said, you will do no such thing, for this is my plan. They did not understand it. Angels still are baffled at the process of salvation but they watched. The order never came. And this darkness represented something. For scripture says that God makes his sun shine upon the just and the unjust, but even the light of the sun was withheld from Jesus when he was made sin for us. He hung in there in silence and darkness for three hours, presenting his soul as an offering to God to finally pay for our sin once and all. And what did God do? He turned his back on him. You see, Jesus was forsaken so that his followers never would be. How did Jesus deal with such anguish and such darkness and such an oppressive state? How did he cry out to the heavens? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not cry out, my God, why did they rip flesh from my body? 
He did not cry out, God, why is there a crown of thorns in my head? He did not cry out, why are they spitting on me? Why are they mocking me? Why are they abusing me? No, on the cross, that was not on his mind. On the cross, he cried out, why have you left me? Jesus had to be forsaken so that way you and I never would be. God did nothing. Jesus was delivered into the hands of those who hated him and beat him. God did nothing. He let Satan and the demons torture his soul worse than Job, yet God did nothing. He had no spirit of comfort on the cross. God did nothing. The angels were ready, battle ready to go and to fight off Satan and the enemies that were watching, ready to take Jesus off the cross, minister to his soul, and help their king and their creator gave, give strength, regain strength. And God did nothing. And he left Jesus totally abandoned by all friends, loved one, and the eternal union called the Trinity abandoned him on the cross. And Jesus' soul felt the wrath of God against the sin of man, for Christ was made sin for us. This was the worst of it. But notice, though, he still clung to the truth as a man that God was still God. He did not cry out, if you're out there, whoever you are, where are you? He said, my God, in the middle of this suffering, you are still my God. In the middle of this pain, I still trust you. In the middle of this disappointment, you're still God. In the middle of all of this, you're still God. How far have you tried to run, believer? How far have you strayed? How numb have you let your soul become? Let me say this. God has not abandoned you. He forsook Jesus, not you. And what an encouraging truth that has to be to shape our perspective in the middle of pain. When you read all this, this is not the most encouraging message in the world. I get it. When you read all this, let me, let me say this. I don't read this passage without hope. You don't view it as the end, do you? Why? Spoiler alert, next Sunday he gets up. So when you read this, you're like, Bible's done. The story's over. You read this suffering and this pain, and you say, yes, this hurts. Yes, there is disappointment. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is suffering. But this is not the end. When you look at the story of your life, don't lose hope. For no matter how bleak it looks and how painful and disappointing it may feel, we know how this ends. We win. We win. For if Jesus got up and declared, death is dead, life reigns, hope reigns, and that same spirit of God lives within you. I'm here to tell you in prophecy, and don't get freaked out by the word, but I'm here to tell you in prophecy, your story will not end terribly. For you may suffer your whole life, but when you breathe your last breath, eternity with Jesus and perfected glory is on the other side. That is how your story ends. 
with resurrection power coursing through your veins. That should give us proper perspective in the midst of our pain. For he is not only in it with you, he is in it for you. And God did not come to die and redeem trees and build the bridge for plants and animals. He came for you. He died for you. So in the midst of your pain, he is near to you to comfort you, unlike he did to Jesus, to give you perspective like Jesus had to continue even in the midst of the valley for your heart's and sanity's sake. He is in it for you. And he doesn't have to, but he wants to, and he does so for you because he loves you, and this is his plan. And it will not, cannot be stopped. And this has to radically shape our perspective of pain. And I pray it radically shapes your perspective of pain. So when the world comes to you and says, how can a good God let bad things happen to good people? We stop them right there and we say, we are not good people. And if God has given us a comfortable life, it is because we have been around favorable people who have been generous. We've done this and we've done that. But my life and the amount of money I have or the lack of money I have is not because God blesses me or shows favor on me any more or less than any other individual for just the sheer fact of knowing God and knowing where I'm going is all the blessing and favor that I need upon my life. There was only one bad thing that happened to a good person and we just read about it. This has to radically shape our perspective of pain. And as we look forward to Good Friday and as we look forward to Easter, Let's know that on the other side of our story, maybe even in the midst of our story now, it does not end on a bad note. It ends with Jesus. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're thankful for you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Our message is not prosperity. Our message is not comfortability. Our message is not material things. Our message is this world sucks. It is broken. It is painful. There is suffering around every corner and every street and in every home. There is brokenness. But in the midst of our pain, we have a hope, and that is our perspective in all of this. When we see things on the news that bring us to tears and we hug our kids a little tighter, when we see things on the news and we hug our spouses a little tighter, God, when we see things and hear things that just help make us think that there is no hope in the world, we know our hope is not here. Jesus, give us that reminder, supernaturally, Holy Spirit, remind us that we have a hope and that we have a future. And it is not in and of our own works. It is not in and of the church itself. It is the bride. It is the, it is the groom of the church. It is the head of the church. It is the king, leader, savior, establisher of the church. It is Jesus. Jesus, you are our hope. We give you praise to an audience of one you. Jesus, we commit our our lives and surrender our plans to you and we are trusting that your plan will be accomplished and thank you for allowing us into your story which is to redeem all things your Jesus we love you we praise you we worship you in Jesus name amen would you stand as we end in song